Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Messiah. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. God who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warnings, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Father, thank You for what King David wrote to us by the Spirit of God. Your precious Messiah, Your Son, the Lord Jesus, whom we come in His name today to worship You. You have seated Him in the heavens. He's at Your right hand and You have promised that someday He will come again for His people. But You also warned He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And He will come to deal out eternal wrath to those who do not know You. May we be good stewards of the Gospel. We know that there are people that are uniquely in our sphere of influence. As we pass them each week, may we pray for some. May we look for opportunity with others to give a word of testimony, a word of witness, and even the gospel. Help us this week. Help each and everyone in this room this week to speak up for Jesus. Now we come this morning to worship you, but also to be strengthened by you. Thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Like newborn babes, we hunger for its purity and its strength that you give by it. You told us that we're not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. But we don't lean today on our own understanding. As we use it, we rely upon you. and We pray for your Holy Spirit to illumine the truth of Scripture. Not to make us just smarter Christians, but to make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I know there is a wide range of spiritual life here. Some new Christians, just days old. Some who have been saved for decades. Some who have remained babes in Christ for decades. And some who have matured. But wherever we are, we pray that you would speak to us. That the Spirit, the Teacher, our Helper, would take the Word of God and help us to see it and understand it and apply it. Help me, O God, fill me and anoint me and use me today. May those who hear this message, may they be more in love with Christ because of it. And we ask in His name, Amen. Would you take the Word of God this morning and turn to Daniel chapter 2. If you've recently joined us, we're working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great prophet. And our subject this morning is very intriguing and a serious subject because it concerns God's plan for the nations. In our passage, God gives us an outline of the nations of the world beginning during the time of the prophet Daniel going all the way until the second coming of the Messiah. And he is giving us his outline so that we can understand what his plans are for the future and how it should influence our lives today. Now, I would never set a date. Jesus explicitly said, but of that day and hour, no one knows. On the other hand, while I would never set a date, and I think to do so would to be to border on heresy, nonetheless, I also recognize what Paul told the church at Thessalonica. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, that that day should take you by surprise. So God has revealed much for His church to see. And I believe that there are many graphic signs that God is fulfilling even in our lives that is reminding us that the coming of Messiah again is very, very close. Now, sometimes when we speak of the second coming, just like when we speak of the first coming, we use those terms very loosely. 
For instance, sometimes in the term the first coming of Christ, we're really speaking of a whole program of events. His birth, his childhood, his three-year public ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his 40-day walk, walk on the earth that led to his ascension into heaven. And sometimes when Christians speak of the second coming, they do so likewise in a very non-technical way. They, they use that term to include really the second coming program beginning with the rapture of the church, the coming tribulation period, and Christ's physical, actual return to the Mount of Olives when He will judge the living and the dead. Now, Paul tells us that there is a mystery about the return of Jesus from heaven. Let me read to you what he said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is to say, not everyone is going to die before Jesus comes again but we will be changed. Now, most good translations are trying to do a single word correspondence with the original language, Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, and to put it into the receptor language. And the Greek word for mystery is mysterion, and it gives us our word mystery. The challenge, though, is I suppose there's not a single English word that captures its meaning. Because when the Bible speaks in the New Testament of a mystery, it's not speaking of something that is unknowable. It's actually describing something that was once hidden and later has been revealed. And it's repeatedly used that way in the Pauline epistles. The resurrection of the dead was plainly taught in the Old Testament. But what was not knowable completely. It was there in kernel form, and that's why it's a mystery. It was there, but it needed to be uncovered. What was not clearly known to those believers in the Old Testament was the rapture of the church. That not all believers would die, but in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, He will come again to catch up His people. The translation. Now, it's seen in passages like with Enoch, who doesn't experience physical death. He's caught up. It begins the days of Noah that become worse and worse and worse and it comes to a worldwide judgment and then he walks into a brand new world. Likewise, the church is going to be caught up. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse like the world has never seen it. It will culminate with the literal, physical, actual second coming of Jesus from heaven and we will go into a brand new world. Now Daniel speaks much of the second coming of Christ. And what he is going to say is going to be very helpful. Understand there has never, ever, ever been a prophecy that is needed to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. That's why as you read the New Testament, it is clear that they lived with a sense of imminency, that Jesus could come today, that His coming is near, that it could be before this sermon is over. But there are all kinds of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming and always have been. But as we see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming in our lifetime, then we know that the rapture that precedes the physical second coming of Jesus to the earth is that much closer. Let me give you a chart here that gives us some perspective from Daniel's point of view. What did he know? Well, at least five major events. He's going to describe for us in this chapter and two others the rise of the Gentile world powers. God is going to reveal that to him very clearly. He's going to give his prophetic outline for the nations. He is going to tell us in the ninth chapter that the city of Jerusalem, after it is destroyed, is going to be rebuilt. And that's a firm date in secular history, and it's an important date because it's going to set the clock running that will bring about the first coming of Messiah to the very day, Palm Sunday, when he sets foot in Jerusalem and presents himself to Israel as her king. Then there is a gap of time. He doesn't know what it is about, but he is going to speak to it. He's going to address it. And then there is this coming time that he will speak of in the 12th chapter, the Great Tribulation Period. And throughout the book, he will speak of Messiah's kingdom. The Old Testament taught the concept of a kingdom. The length of the kingdom, that it is a thousand years, is revealed in the New Testament. But let's take a look at this chart now from God's point of view. God fills in details for us because we have the revelation. But what is so sad is that most Christians today don't know as much as Daniel knew. And Daniel had a limited amount of prophecy. We have the whole of Scripture. 
And we should know what God says about His prophetic program. Why? Because in virtually every passage in the Bible, when God speaks of the return of His Son from heaven, there's an exhortation as to what we should do or how we should live or how we should behave. So, God speaks of the rise of the Gentile world powers. Jerusalem being rebuilt. But this gap of time, very clearly in the Bible is the building of the church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I will, future, build my church. The church, the Bible very clearly delineates, begins on the day of Pentecost. And He is building His church. And when the last person in the bride of Christ becomes a part of that church, the rapture, the catching up is going to take place. The time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah the prophet terms it, Jesus calls it the great tribulation is going to begin to unfold and that will culminate with the battle of Armageddon by which Jesus will come at His second coming and He will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. I believe one of the problems in the church today is we have lost our love for the return of Christ and it is affecting and impacting the way many of God's people are living. And our forefathers in early America had a different view You go into the Library of Congress and there on the wall it says one God, one law, one element, and one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. They had it right. They knew that history was moving towards the return of Jesus from heaven. And so here, the title of this morning's sermon is called Dreams That Come True because God unfolds His plan his dream for the Gentile nations of the world. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, called this chapter of Scripture the ABCs of Bible prophecy. And he was right on because this chapter is a fundamental chapter to understanding God's dealings with men. And if you understand this chapter of Scripture, it will help you to understand the revelation. And that's why I told you the key to understanding revelation is to get a basic grasp of the book of Daniel. And if you miss today, he's going to repeat himself two other times so that you can't miss it before we're done. But I think you could equally call this chapter the XYZ of Bible prophecy. Because he begins with a time frame starting in Daniel's day and he goes all the way to the end to the second coming of the Messiah. I've told you before that the most attacked book in the Bible next to Genesis is the book of Daniel. And the reason the critics love to attack Daniel is because they think he knew too much. They have trouble in their fallen minds because a natural man, the Bible says, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. If you're not born again, very often you will have difficulty appreciating what the Word of God says. And so they have trouble with Daniel because he pre-writes the future and he does it with great specificity. The most attacked book in all the Bible is Genesis. And the most attacked verse within all the Bible is Genesis 1.1. It's eight words in Hebrew. Barashit bara Elohim. In the beginning created God et hashemeim viet haaretz. The heavens and the earth. Eight words in Hebrew. Ten words in our English Bible. If you can believe Genesis 1.1, you can believe anything else. God put the key in the front door. You want to know where a man stands and whether you should listen to him or not as a pastor? Find out what he believes about Genesis 1-1. If he ascribes the theistic evolution, he is very, very foolish and more than likely lost. An apologetics book came out on a mainline Christian press a few years ago and this teacher teaches theistic evolution. I'm not saying he's not a Christian, but I'm saying what he has done is a great disservice to the church. If you can't believe the first verse of the Bible, the foundation, then you can't believe the rest. Ask any pastor, what do you think about the first 11 chapters of Genesis? If he tells you, well, they're not actual history, they're just a parable to teach us a spiritual truth, then you know you shouldn't listen to him. Look, if you can believe the first book, you can believe the rest of it. And there is a supernatural dimension to the prophet Daniel. You say, wouldn't it be nice if we had an authority who could definitively say to all these liberals that Daniel is not just some pseudonym, 
not some phony person that they give a title to a book to, but a real actual historical person who wrote the future. Wouldn't it be nice if we had such authority who could definitively say that? Well, we do. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse. He referred to Daniel, not as Daniel the historian, but in Matthew 24, 15, he calls him Daniel the prophet. And so your argument is not with me. Ultimately, it is with Jesus Christ. You have to say to the Lord Jesus, you are a liar. What you said about Daniel is untrue because I'm smarter than you. And I hope you don't want to blaspheme the living God in that way. Now, let me remind you of the context. The first two chapters remind us that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And more is said about this particular pagan king than any other lost king in all of the Bible. He was a wicked despot, a high-handed king. He conquers the city of Jerusalem as General Nebuchadnezzar. His father, Nebuchadnezzar, is king. But while the city is under siege, his father dies. So he works the deal out. He puts a puppet king in the place of the reigning king. His name is Zedekiah. He plucks the man's eyes out ultimately before he burns or murders his own sons. He's an awful, awful, awful man. And he goes back and to Babylon and he takes with him Daniel along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, three of his friends. And so when God gives a summary of this king's life, he says this in Daniel 5, because of the grandeur which he, God, bestowed on him, Nebuchadnezzar, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. And so Nebuchadnezzar is very, very important. Because he brings about a change in Israel's history. Up until this time, Israel had been under a theocracy where God personally ruled the nation. But it changes when you come to King Nebuchadnezzar. And that change will be underscored in three visions, chapter 2, chapter 7, and verse chapter 8. We saw that 1 through 6 are largely historical with a little bit of prophecy. We're in that little bit of prophecy today. 7 through 12 is almost all prophecy, the most challenging part of the book. And today will be challenging for some of you, and you've got to pay attention. You've got to gird up your loins for action. You've got to get your mind set and pay attention. But it's going to get much more difficult. But it is understandable because God gave Scripture to understand, and if we will cry out to Him and ask Him for His help and illumination, He will give it. But Nebuchadnezzar begins a time known as the times of the Gentiles where the Gentile nations begin to rule and they begin to oppress the people of Israel. You wonder why there have been so many anti-Semites all these centuries? It's because we are in the time of the Gentiles. Yes, the Jewish people in 1948 became a nation, but they are still oppressed by the Gentile nations of the world, and the United Nations will not even recognize their right to sovereignly rule over the city of Jerusalem, which, by the way, is a prophecy that Zechariah the prophet mentions. And so God is at work. God is ruling. Jeremiah the prophet spoke of this day. Jeremiah, remember, lived right before Daniel. He's a pre-exilic prophet. Daniel lives during the time of the exile. And we're going to find Daniel reading the prophet Jeremiah. Some of the very words we're going to read. Jeremiah 25.8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. Verse 6 of the 27th chapter. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also wild animals of the field to serve him. So Daniel, who lives after Jeremiah, we will find him reading Jeremiah in the ninth chapter. And he's going to read some of these very verses. And he's going to understand that Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant, not because he loves the living God, but because he is a tool in the hand of a sovereign God. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's building a mighty kingdom for himself. 
But in reality, as Daniel will reveal, he is building a school in which to discipline God's people for 70 years because of their disobedience. Now, if you were here last time, we dealt with the dream and its consequences. Today, we want to focus on the dream and its contents. If you're new, there's a note-taking outline. Most of the main points will be here on the slides. The sub-points will not, so pay attention. So first, let's think about the substance of the king's dream. If you remember last time, when chapter 2 opens, Nebuchadnezzar cannot sleep. It speaks of dreams, plural, but then it speaks of the dream. So he has the same dream over and over and over again. And he has divine insomnia. All of us at one time or another can't sleep. I woke up last night at 2.30. I couldn't sleep. I try to go to sleep. I'm still awake. Thank God. I'll pass out when it's all over. But you heard about the woman who called her a pastor? Pastor, I'm having trouble sleeping. He said, you want me to pray for you? No, I want you to preach to me. I hope that's not the laughter of identification this morning. So here's a man, and he calls all the wise men of the kingdom, and he said, I have a dream. Tell me what it means. Oh, no problem, king. Tell us your dream. And they say, he says, just so I know you're on the level and you're not blowing smoke in my face, you tell me the dream first, and then tell me the interpretation. And of course, these men cannot do that. There are false prophets. And so he orders all of these people to be executed. But before the king's command can be carried out, God reveals the content and the interpretation of the dream to Daniel. And he gives all the credit to God for it. And what God shows Daniel really forms the backbone of biblical prophecy concerning the rise and fall of the Gentile nations. It begins with Nebuchadnezzar, the time of the Gentiles, and it goes all the way through the second coming of the Messiah. Here in chapter 2, in verse 28, we are told this. However, Daniel tells the king, however, there is a God in heaven. I can't reveal it, but there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Underscore that phrase, in the latter days. The Bible speaks of the last days in the New Testament, and it also uses this identical phrase, the latter days in the New Testament. Two distinct times. The last days began with the day of Pentecost. We've been in the last days since Pentecost, and that's why the Bible teaches the imminent return. Jesus could come at any moment. Now, I believe we're in the last of the last days, but the Bible also speaks of the latter days, prophecies that are very unique to the very end of time, and that's what he's speaking about here. The latter times, he's going to carry it all the way to the end of time. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place. Here it is in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Now, with those general observations, let's dig in. Let's start with the details of the image. The details of the image. Look now, if you will, at verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large, and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue, this statue is a man made of various metals from head to toe. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, there are several truths that we want to note about this statue. First, it was a great statue. Now, how large it was, we are not told. It's just great. Maybe it mimics the one that is in chapter 3, this huge colossal statue that he will build. Maybe he tries to mimic the one he saw in his dream. It's a gigantic figure that we'll study next time. But in addition, it has a dazzling luster to it. It is described here as being of extraordinary splendor. And just with those words out of Daniel's mouth, the king knows that he knows. He knows his dream. And because he knows his dream and he had told it to no one, he knows that what he is about to say is going to be reliable. You can see a picture here of it. First, there's the head of gold. Then there's the breast of silver. 
and then there is the middle portion, the thighs that are of bronze, and the legs of iron, and then the feet of iron and of clay. Now, when you look at this vision, you might think that there are five Gentile nations that are in view. That's the way we might initially try to count it. But if you study it very carefully and you put it together with this vision repeated in different forms in the 7th and in the 8th chapter, you would discover that there are four nations that are in view. The head is made of fine gold, the breast and the arms of silver, the belly and the thighs of brass, the legs of iron and the feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So the last two parts are really one empire, as we will see, what we might call Rome 1 and Rome 2. And so Daniel, by divine illumination, is given this vision, and he describes the details of the image. Also now, beginning in verse 34, think about the destruction, the destruction of the image. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck this statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so that was the dream disclosed by Daniel. And the king would have thought, yes, that is my dream, Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar, here's of this poly metallic statue of sorts that he had dreamed about, but he's confounded. And what is especially confounding to him, and no doubt what woke him up at night, was this stone that rolled and rolled and rolled, a stone cut out without human hands, a stone that hits the feet of iron and clay and destroys the entire image. And then that stone becomes a great mountain that fills the entire earth. Now, that's the substance of the dream. Second, let's think about the significance of the king's dream. What's the significance of this dream? Now, I want us to understand the meaning of this mighty metallic man. And before we look at the interpretation, we might ask an important question. Why would God at this time in human history reveal a prophecy like this one that to Daniel and for his people who are going to read, of course, his writings? Two reasons. First, God is setting Israel on notice that He is done with them as a nation, as a theocracy. He's not finished with them, but He is done ruling directly over them. That they are going to be under Gentile oppression. But secondly, He wants to underscore because He is a promise-keeping God and He made some unconditional promises to Abraham and reaffirmed them to Isaac and to Jacob that he has not abandoned Israel. Now, if you remember Israel, time and time and time again, refused to listen to God's prophets. They killed them one after another. They came as men of God and they invited them to turn from their idolatry and their wickedness. But in essence, they said, like so many of us, we don't want you to rule over us. We don't want you to be our king. And Jesus told a very parable in the New Testament explaining Israel's time in that way. And so a time began known as the time of the Gentiles. You can see it pictured here. In 605 BC, the Babylonian captivity comes with Nebuchadnezzar. Up until that time, Israel is supreme. They are center stage out of all the nations of the earth. But when Nebuchadnezzar comes, the Gentile powers begin to take over. And this period of time is designated by Jesus as the time of the Gentiles in Luke 21, 24. But there's coming a time, as this vision will tell us this morning, and other passages in the Word of God, when Israel will be restored. It will happen at the second coming. In fact, it will begin to unfold during the time of the Great Tribulation. But at the second coming, Israel will become center stage, and Messiah will rule as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so to begin with, there are several keys to understanding this dream. And first, it concerns four mighty world powers. So let's think about the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of men. Notice, if you will, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Look at verse 39. After you, there will also arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Look at verse 40. There will be a fourth kingdom, 
as strong as iron. Four times, kingdom, 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 kingdom. Between verses 37 and 44, the term kingdom is used nine times. So the dream concerns world kingdoms. And you will notice in which manner he interprets this dream. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation before the king. He comes as the man of God with a sense of authority. He doesn't say, well, this is what we think it might mean. No, this is precisely what it means. And before he's done, he will say at the end of verse 45, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So there's no mystery to this piece of prophecy. Daniel is going to tell us exactly what it means. Now we're told specifically that the head of gold represents the first kingdom. So beginning in verse 37, he mentions four successive kingdoms. The first kingdom, of course, is the Babylonian kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar is that head of gold. That's number one if you're still with me, all right? You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Notice, God gives it. We see the sovereignty of God all the way through this prophet. God raises up rulers. God puts them down. God, the God of heaven has given you the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. He is emphasizing to Nebuchadnezzar that what he experiences doesn't purely come from his own achievement, but from the hand of a mighty God. I have written out in my margin, I put it out there this week because it came to my mind, 2 Corinthians 4.7. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast like you've not received it? What do you have that you did not receive? A pastor came to me not long ago, a young pastor. He said, Pastor, will you pray for me that God will help me to stay humble? And I said, well, what do you have to be proud about? What do you have that you did not receive? People talk about pastors getting a big head. That's typically because they don't have a renewed mind. They don't understand that what they have is from God. And what you have this morning, whether it's your natural talents or your spiritual gifts, is all from God. What do you have that you have not received? And when you understand that, it changes your entire perspective. John the Baptist said, a man can receive nothing except what has been given to him from heaven. So Daniel wants us to know right off that the head is this king, and God put him there. And of course, this guy has a pride problem. He doesn't really acknowledge that the God of heaven put him here, that the God of heaven is the one who gave him all this strength and power, and God is going to humble him. In fact, we're going to read about it in the fourth chapter, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to write Daniel chapter 4. And it is so perfect, and it's exactly what God wants. He's going to include it in the canon of Scripture. Look at verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold, clear as can be. So here's the statue. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And what a fitting emblem to describe Babylon with gold. The Babylonians were enamored with gold. Remember now, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 42 plus years. And even in the introduction of the book, when the kingdom was, in many respects, not rich and wealthy, he had a hunger for gold. Do you remember in the opening chapter, verse 2, he comes and he also wants some of the vessels of the house of God. And when we come to that drunken party in the fifth chapter, we're going to find Belshazzar drinking from those golden vessels from the temple. But the gold just grows and grows, and they become wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. The splendor and wealth of the Babylonian empire is beyond measure. And in Babylonian cuneiform, we have a record of what a mighty empire it was. Herodotus, who visited Babylon some 90 years after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, said he had never seen so much gold any place in all of his life. The temples, he said, the chapels, the furniture, the utensils were all made out of gold. When we come to the next chapter, he's going to make a gigantic statue out of gold. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And you know his head had this swell. He has this sense of self-importance. 
But God is going to remind him that his kingdom will not last forever. There's a second kingdom. Look at verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And this second kingdom is not characterized by gold, but by silver. The head of the statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver. And so here it is in this picture. This, of course, is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. Write it down. It's number two. This kingdom is Medo-Persian Empire. Now, how do we know that? You say, well, right above this, there's a, uh, there's a title. It says in the, here in the New American Standard, Medo-Persia and Greece, describing the next two kingdoms. Look, that, that's not part of the Hebrew text. That's put there by the publisher. And one thing the New American Standard does well for us is it puts it in bold type and it puts it in italics. Now, since the time of Tyndale's Bible in the Geneva Bible, the translators would put certain English words in italics. Not like we do in modern English for emphasis, but to this day when you see italics in your English text, it means that those words are not found in the original. If you've ever worked between languages and you go from the original language to the receptor language, sometimes you have to add words that are clearly implied in the original language and is assumed and is there in the original language, but not specifically there because of the way certain peoples communicate. And so very often in our English Bibles, they'll write in italics those words because they're implied or sometimes because of the structure of a language, you have to add words or it won't read smoothly. But you can see where those words are. You say, well, the only reason we know that this is Medo-Persia and Greece, these next two kingdoms, because the Lockman Foundation put them there, they put them there the same reason we have chapter and verse divisions. The chapter and verse divisions help you find your way around the Bible. And the chapter titles, you're looking for something, you can see at the top of a page or in the middle of the page, various chapter titles. Oh yeah, that's what I'm looking for. It's in this paragraph. But we know it because Scripture tells us in other places, right out in the margin next to this verse, Daniel 5 and verse 28. In Daniel 5, 28, God specifically identifies this empire as the Medo-Persian Empire. Perez, this is the night of that drunken party when the hand literally appears on the wall. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. So back here in chapter 2, God gives Babylon a notice. You're going to be destroyed. The Medo-Persian Empire is going to take you over. And it did on that night. Now, why silver? Well, number one, silver is an inferior metal to gold. And as powerful and as rich as Medo-Persia was not as rich and mighty as Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Now, they collected silver, but not gold in the same level that this man did. Let me read to you a passage again from Daniel 5 and verse 19. He's describing Nebuchadnezzar and he said, Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whoever he wanted to kill, he killed. Whoever he wanted to spare, he spared. Whomever he wanted to elevate, he elevated. Whoever he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when you come to this second kingdom, the same despotic authority is not there. It's a strong kingdom, but we're going to see in the sixth chapter, Darius, who's a Medo-Persian king, has his hands tied. How? By the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So he's not the same kind of despot. Can you see Nebuchadnezzar having his hands tied? Not on your life. He is a vicious Hitler of his day. He plucks out people's eyes, and Jeremiah records that when his officers don't treat him the way he wants, he has them burned alive and roasted. But silver, of course, is a good emblem for this empire because the Persians were known for their broad and efficient collection of taxes throughout the empire, and they would repeatedly collect silver coinage. Now, the third empire, the third government, has a belly and a thigh of bronze, of bronze. Look at Daniel 2.39. After you, after Medo-Persia, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So here's metallic man. Once again, here's the third part. 
pictured here on the next slide, and you can write in under point three, the kingdom of Greece, the kingdom of Greece. You say, how do we know this is the kingdom of Greece? Because of the chapter title? Of course not. Because of Daniel 8.21 and Daniel 11.21. You might want to write that out in the margin, Daniel 8.21 and 11.21. God specifically names Greece as this third empire. And when we come to chapters 8 and chapters 11, we're going to learn, beginning in 334 B.C., that Alexander the Great conquers Medo-Persia. And God is going to tell all about what this great king, Alexander the Great, is going to do ever before he's even born. Now, sometimes God will name a person by name, a king by name, even before he's born. So we studied in the introductory sermon, Cyrus who is named 150 years by the prophet Isaiah before he's born. What do the liberals do with that? Well, it, again, you can find out a whole lot about whether a man really loves the living God and appreciates the authority of Scripture by the way he describes someone like Isaiah. So a liberal preacher, teacher, scholar will speak of Deutero-Isaiah or Tritero-Isaiah. What are they saying? They're saying, oh, you know, to tell the future in advance with great specificity is impossible. So they don't want to deny the whole book of Isaiah, but they'll say, well, there was two, maybe even three authors to Isaiah, and some of these guys were recording history. Oh, no, 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 no. In the New Testament, all three sections are quoted and given credit to one prophet, Isaiah. That's the way the Lord Jesus sees it. That's the way I'm going to see it. And so sometimes God specifies a person even by name before they're born, or sometimes he describes the person so vividly it can't apply to anyone else but the person that we know from human history. And by the way, the liberals do not deny that this description of Alexander the Great and the four generals that will follow after he dies, he conquers all these great nations of the world, and he sits down and he cries because there's no more nations to conquer. And after his death, his four generals take over, and it's divided into four parts. And they don't deny that. They say, clearly, that's what Daniel is saying. He's just writing history. But we're going to see that that's impossible, not just on the authority of Christ's words, but because of the nature of some of the prophecies and some of the Dead Sea Scroll findings. All right? Stay with me now. So here's this king that's coming, and it's described by bronze. And what an appropriate symbol. You know, in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I grew up, there was an armory called the Higgins Armory. And the Higgins family had the largest collection of medieval armor in the world. It was an extraordinary building. They just closed it a year ago, and they gave all their collection to the Smithsonian. And as a young boy, we would go there many times, and I was just enamored by all this armor, right down to the little puppy dogs they'd put armor on. But after I became a believer, I went back with a different set of eyes. Because I was also interested, though a very limited collection, in their Roman armor collection and their Greek armor collection. And if you know anything about Grecian soldiers, you know that the poet spoke of the bronze, brazen-coated Greeks. Bronze is an excellent symbol of this Greek empire. Now, it's not as valuable as silver or gold. And of course, if you know anything about Greece, they're not as strong as Medo-Persia. Why? Because they lack administration. And because they lack administration, good administration, I suppose much like modern Greece, they end up crumbling to the next world power. Verse 40 describes the fourth empire, the Roman empire, the Roman empire. Let me read it to you. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. And as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Here it is pictured again. This kingdom is symbolized initially by iron. Repeated over and over and over again, iron. And so we speak every childhood, grammar school child who studies Roman history has heard of the iron legions of Rome. And of course, 50 years before the birth of our Savior, Rome comes into power, they take over Greece, and they rule for over three centuries. They are a very strong nation. This is a nation, of course, that puts the Lord Jesus on the cross. But I find it very interesting to note that this fourth empire begins with legs of iron, but it concludes with feet of both iron and clay. Look at verse 41. And that you saw the feet and toes, 
partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. What is he saying? He's saying this empire will start incredibly strong, but it will gradually be weakened. Look at verse 42. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. So it turns from two legs of iron that verse 33 notes that would have described the eastern and western portions of the Roman Empire. Remember, they're not a power yet. At this point, they're just a, a little tribe by the Tiber River. They're virtually non-existent. They're, they're, it's about the size of Yemassee. I mean, they're a nothing people. But God is writing the future ever before it happens. Not that the people in Yemersee are nothing. Forgive me if you're from Yemersee. But here, uh, point five, uh, next slide here, we, we see the feet of iron mixed with common clay. So it's strong at, at its inception, but it begins to weak. Now, question. Did the Roman Empire ever divide into ten parts? No, it did not. Never history records no such thing. And yet Daniel is describing a tenfold division of this empire. And that's why I say, as the next two visions in the 7th and 8th chapter will underscore, there are four nations that are in view. But this fourth nation will basically be what we call Rome 1 and Rome 2. Rome initially, but then a coming revived Roman empire that is still in the future. You say, how do you get that? It's very clear from the Scripture. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically that sometimes in a verse of Scripture, God will give uh, a prophecy with a gap of time between it. He'll lump together two prophecies in one verse. And I'll give you many illustrations of that before we're done, but let me just give you one that is familiar to many of you, Isaiah 9. Because we read it at Christmas, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And we say, oh yeah, that's Christmas. That's the incarnation. But we don't typically quote the next verse. There will be no end to the increase of his government of, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Why don't we quote that verse? Because it fills out verse 6. And when Jesus came the first time, the governments of this world did not rest on his shoulders. That will not happen until he comes again. And so between Daniel 2.40 and Daniel 2.41, there's a gap of time. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this out. All you have to do is keep reading. But let's first read verse 43. And then that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another, these ten toes, these ten nations, and the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So the Roman Empire that begins with iron begins to regress into a state of clay mixed with iron and it progressively gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And then he describes these ten toes that are mixed of iron and clay. Now, if you take iron and you bring it to its heating point and it melts and you take clay and you turn it into a liquid and you pour them together in one mold, they will not become a stronger alloy. Now, some, some metals, you can take two metals, and you mix them together, and what's the result is a stronger metal. But the cast will be brittle. The iron, when it cools, will not mix with the clay. And so he's describing this coming ten-nation empire that is brittle, but it is held together, notice, by the seed of men. Now, we're going to come to that. That's important. Through intermarrying that is taking place, this ten-nation coalition is going to take a certain cohesiveness on. Now, what does that refer to? Well, we'll come to it in the seventh chapter. So hold on. But don't get lost in the detail. What I want you to see is that there's a gap of time between the 40th and the 31st verse. And again, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure that out. All you need to do is keep reading. Look at verse 44. In the days of those kings, these ten kings, by the way, he's going to describe a ten-horned creature as will John in the Revelation. 
John in the Revelation is going to speak of a ten-nation coalition. And I believe that God is setting the stage for that coalition, and we're going to study it. Some incredible things are happening in our lifetime. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to these kingdoms, but it, it itself will endure forever. When did this happen? When will this happen? In the days of those kings. In the days of what kings? In the days of those kings representing ten toes and ten nations in this image. And who is going to do this? The Messiah himself. Remember, he's speaking about the latter days. And it is not by accident that the Apostle John in the 17th chapter of the Revelation speaks of this same ten-nation coalition that will be in existence during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's not as strong as the original. It doesn't have the same cohesiveness as the original, but it does have some of that iron strength, and the seed of man will hold it together. And I think part of that is being fulfilled through what we're seeing in the Muslim world. The Muslims have been pouring into the revived, into old, the old European Roman Empire. And they're taking over. And of course, some of the presidents and prime ministers are concerned because they're losing their identity as a people. And of course, the Muslims are not only marrying with each other, they're having babies like we're not. The average Christian has two kids. The average Muslim has seven kids. You wonder why they're growing so fast? You see these refugees coming from the Middle East? How old are most of them? 80% of the Muslims in the world are under the age of 35. Not old men who are coming across the border. These are young men, 18, 19, 20 years of age. And they're multiplying and they're filling Europe up and the mosques are beginning to come up everywhere and they'll come up here in these United States. They say in another 20 years we'll have 50 million Muslims in this nation. Now there are people for whom Christ died. and You need to have compassion on those people. You need to do everything that you can to reach these people for Christ. But there's going to be a cohesiveness through the seed of men in these ten nations. And from this coalition is going to come, as we will see, the Antichrist. And by the way, Daniel will say more about the Antichrist than any book in all of the Bible. You're going to learn more about Antichrist in this prophet than any other single place. So these are the kingdoms of men. But in addition to the kingdoms of man, there is the kingdom of Messiah, beginning now in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all the worldly kingdoms, and it will endure forever. Verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great... God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. All of a sudden, at the end of the dream, this statue is going to be moved. And this is why it's so terrifying to the king. Look again at verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And so this stone that is coming and it strikes the statue, not on the head, not on the breast, not on the thighs, not on the legs, but on the feet of clay. And according to verse 45, this stone is detached from a mountain and it's made without human hands. And it's this stone that crushes the feet. And Daniel, just so that you know in your mind that this is not some fantasy, he ends the verse by saying, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Well, who or what is this stone? Again, the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. This is clearly a reference to Messiah. Beginning in Genesis all the way through the Bible, Messiah is pictured as a stone and repeatedly described even in the New Testament in the same way. In Exodus 17... Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 10 when he recounts for the Corinthians Israel's history. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, he says, and they all, the Jewish people in the wilderness, they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. In Psalm 118, 22, 
the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And when you come to the New Testament, that verse is quoted five times in the Synoptic Gospels, in the Acts, as well as in 1 Peter. In Romans 9, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah, the 28th chapter. Let me read Isaiah 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So if you follow carefully, beginning in Genesis 49, all the way through the Old Testament, the stone is a picture of the Messiah himself. And the Jewish people, he came to his own, but his own received him not. They stumbled over the cornerstone, but someday they're going to embrace him. But because this is a messianic picture, we learn much about this coming kingdom. And I want to underscore three truths as we close. Number one, its origin. Its origin is supernatural. That's number one. Its origin is supernatural. We read here in verse 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Again in verse 45, it's repeated, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. This is true of the Lord Jesus. This kingdom is supernatural. Twice over, it's underscored. This stone is cut out without hands, which tells me this is not man-made. Men can make bricks. Only God can make a stone. And this kingdom originates with God, whereas the statue, it's man-made. And the one we'll see in the fourth chapter, it's man-made, or in the third chapter. But this is cut out of the mountain, and it originates with God Himself. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name God with us. Emmanuel. And this is why Isaiah 9 can say, a child is going to be born. Fantastic. What's the baby's name? Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There's coming a baby who is a man, but he is more than a man. He is the God-man. A baby is coming, and the baby's name is called Mighty God. This king did not originate with man. This kingdom did not originate with man. It is a supernatural kingdom of supernatural origin. Secondly, its power is extraordinary. Not only is its origin supernatural, its power is extraordinary. There has never been a kingdom like the coming kingdom of the Messiah in all of human history. And we will see that these other kingdoms were left to other people. The kingdom of Babylon falls to Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia falls to Greece. Greece is relinquished to Rome. But when this kingdom comes, it is a forever kingdom. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And how long will it last when all the other kingdoms of men are destroyed? It says here in this verse, it will endure forever. So it strikes the statue and the image collapses. Now, when did that happen in human history? Was this prophecy fulfilled when Jesus came into the world the first time? Not on your life. He never brought some catastrophic uh, fall on all the governments of the world. Is this a uh, prophecy that is being fulfilled in the peaceful spread of the gospel? Has my post-millennial friends have taught that the world becomes more and more and more Christ-like? Look, history shows otherwise. Clearly not. Is this a prophecy being fulfilled in the church as Calvin and my amillennial friends teach? I don't think so. How did Jesus fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning His first coming? Literally. Was there ever a time when Messiah steps on the planet and He crushes all the nations of the world and rooms supremely? Not yet. This prophecy is fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. The whole idea that Messiah comes before His kingdom, what we call pre or before the kingdom, pre-millennialism, is taught right in passages like this. Messiah comes and He sets up His kingdom. It's the only way you can understand this passage. And so in Daniel 2, we read it earlier, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed. How? All at the same time. All of the nations of the world are going to become subservient to Jesus Christ. And so, Revelation eleven seventeen 17 says, the kingdoms of this world 
have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. He will rule not just for a thousand years, but this kingdom will be forever and ever and ever. Look at verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff. And not a trace of them was found. This speaks of the wrath of God on a sinful world. And let me remind you that people who adore this sweet baby at Christmas miss that He is also the righteous judge. And He someday, as Isaiah the prophet will say, you will break them, the nations, with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The prophet Malachi says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff and that day is coming. It will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch like chaff on the summer threshing floor. Messiah is going to come to establish His kingdom. It is supernatural. It's extraordinary. Finally, its scope is worldwide. Daniel 2.35 says, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and did what? Filled the whole earth. It is a worldwide kingdom. Isaiah 11 says, A day is coming when they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, but the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's coming. Now, how are we going to apply this passage of Scripture? Let me give us three applications because God gave us His Word not just to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like Jesus Christ. Number one, the Bible teaches the ultimate deterioration of human government. That is clear in the Bible. When God pictures the kingdoms of this world, He pictures them not in an upward spiral, but in a downward dive. And ultimately, the kingdoms of this world are going to come to the Antichrist Himself. What we find here is not evolution, but devolution. A downward spiral. God is not saying the nations of this world are going to get better. They will ultimately get worse like the days of Noah, days of moral permissiveness. And Jesus said when Messiah comes and sets up His kingdom, they will dive down to the days of Lot, days of moral perversion, homosexuality. And Jesus said, describing that final seven-year time, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, they will be cut short. Daniel is picturing the delicate foundations of all of human government, and it begins with the gigantic statue of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, but it is all supported on a foundation of mud. Now listen, I want to be a good citizen. And I will put feet to my prayer and I will get out and vote and I will have my voice heard and I want to be salt and I want to be light. But I don't want to invest in my whole life in the tottering governments of this world. Because in the end, they are going to all be destroyed. So make sure you're putting your priority where God puts it. On the great commission of His Son. Secondly, I learned from this passage of Scripture that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is not going to be brought about by human effort. It's going to be brought about when Jesus shows up. You know, there on the wall of the United Nations, many of you have been there, there's this wall with this verse on it from Isaiah 2. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spheres into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And of course, the implication of them putting on their wall is that they're saying the United Nations are going to pull this off. I want to tell you there is not enough peacekeeping forces in the world to make this happen. We should be people who are peacemakers. But I want to tell you it is only the Prince of Peace will pull this off. And this contextually, in spite of the fact they use it out of context, it's a reference to Messiah Himself when He comes and He establishes His kingdom. Third and finally, I want to remind you that this prophecy teaches me 
that God has everything under control and it's never been out of His control. Listen, this is an awesome prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in 602 B.C. They are a power, but not the world power they will become under his leadership. He reigns for over 42 years. Nebuchadnezzar dreams about the Greeks, and they're nothing but a group of uh, warring tribes down there in the desert land. He dreams about the Romans. And the Romans, they're so, such a small little village at this point down on the Tiber River. And yet Daniel, remember, he's writing the future. This is a mind-blowing prophecy. And this is why they attacked Daniel. He's writing the future ever before it happens. And I'm reminded by the prophetic nature of God's Word that He has everything under His control It may appear to you at times that ISIS is winning. It may appear to you at times that this whole wicked world is winning. But this passage is teaching there's coming a day when this evil, God-hating world will yield itself to the Messiah itself. They've always clubbed his Abel's. They've always mocked his Joseph's. They've always stoned his saints. They've always killed his prophets. They've always poked fun at his preachers. They've always slain his people. But God is coming, and He's going to make every wrong right. There's never been a time when this world has not been under the control of God Himself. The smiting stone is coming, and He will turn the nations of this world to dust. And He will rule forever and ever and ever. It's good to know your Bible. It's good to know what God says about the future, that you're not driven by headline hysteria, but by the truth of Holy Scripture. Now, we'll pick up the concluding thoughts next time, and we will see that Nebuchadnezzar is awestruck by this prophecy. He's blown away. But does he turn from his false gods, of which he has a multiplicity, to the one true only God? No, he does not. Some of you, you hear the Word of God taught and it is alive and it pokes and pricks your heart. But like Nebuchadnezzar, you don't repent. And if Jesus comes today, you will have wished you had because you will be forever lost. Today is the day to be saved. Our Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. I pray today for someone who is here, who has now renounced the gods of this world and given themselves over fully to the Lord Jesus. Help them to see that there's nothing they can do in their own to earn Your approval. Help them to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that He alone can pay for their sin And give them what they need. So many, Father, they are captivated by the worries of this life, by its concerns, by its riches. And they need to stop and pause and put Jesus first. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, you told us that we need not fear that things will get worse because you said these things must happen. So help us to have our minds firmly planted in the truth of Holy Scripture. And help us even in this new week to be faithful with the Gospel. Give us someone this week for whom soul we can reach out to and care for. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.